Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. It's genuinely an honor to be here tonight. And it's particularly an honor when I look at this list of who else is coming. I'm ready to move to Phoenix to hear all of this. <laughs> and honestly, if all Valley Beit Midrash did was to bring you these teachers, Dayenu, I mean, this is amazing. So I'm honored. And I'm also impressed. I'm impressed that so many of you are here tonight. Because uh, we've just had a lot of holy days. And they're finally over. <laughs> we enter the new month of Cheshvan this week. It's called in our tradition Mar Cheshvan, bitter Cheshvan because there are no holidays. But secretly, <laughs> contemporary rabbis at least, and who knows about those who went before us, contemporary rabbis call it, thank God it's Cheshvan, <laughs> because they are so tired out from leading services. I'm happy to report that this is not my problem anymore because I'm retired. Now, like many of you, I'm a Jew in the pews. So now I look forward to Cheshvan and also to Rosh Chodesh when we chant Hallel, Psalms of Praise. My favorite verse in Hallel comes from Psalm 118. Min ha-meitzar karatiyah anani b'merchavyah. From the narrow place I call to God, who answered me with the divine expanse. From the narrow place. This verse speaks to me especially now at this stage of my life. I'm 68 years old. I'm a boomer. Social science research says that my cohort is living 31 years longer than our grandparents did. 31 years not tacked on to the end of our life, but just after the middle. It's a new stage between midlife and frail old age. Didn't exist in the past. Remember that adolescence was created in the 1920s, right? A new stage of life. This is a new stage of life, too, between when we were raising our kids, when we were building our careers, and in the future, frail old age. I don't want this stage to be a narrow place. So what is this narrow place? It's those birthday cards that suggest that anyone over 50 is over the hill. Or it's the ones that come when you turn 60. Think of it this way. You're not losing it 
You're just not using it as often. Or the ones this year. There are three ages of a person. Youth, middle age, and you look good. <laughs> the narrow place. 60 is the new 40. 70 is the new 50. I'm not really growing older. The narrow place. What am I? I used to be the senior rabbi of Temple Emmanuel of Beverly Hills. Who am I now? I'm retired, yes, but I'm still engaged in projects that matter to me. So what words do I use to describe myself? I do like that movies and this new metro in Los Angeles is less expensive when you're my age, but I don't really like the word. Elder sounds too pretentious. The narrow place, ageism, stereotyping and discrimination on the basis of a person's age. Actually, the last socially sanctioned prejudice. People say things about old people that they would never say about other kinds of diversity. The narrow place, the way you become invisible as you grow older. Internal ageism, internalized ageism, accepting the stereotypes, me accepting the stereotypes, that wrinkles are ugly, that it's sad to be old, that old people are incompetent. And what's the real narrow place? Denial, our reluctance, even those of us that are in midlife, to admit that we are aging. All of us are aging. Many of us are still trying to deny that. The idea that older people are other, not us not even future us. Denial, not being willing to admit that we deserve or need help in certain situations. Like how much easier it is for some of us to actually have a wheelchair when we go to the airport, and how hard it is to acknowledge that and ask for it. Not being honest enough to acknowledge our own prejudices about growing older. That narrow place. Not facing the truth that each of us will someday die. It's like Woody Allen. Are we still allowed to uh, cite Woody Allen? <laughs> Who famously said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality by not dying. <laughs> so yes, you all know that there is a narrow place, but we don't have to stay there. The challenge is to transform this paradigm of decline into one of possibility and opportunity. And maybe, like that psalm, into divine expansiveness. So here's what I want to shout. 68 is the new 68. <laughs> In fact, my best birthday card this year was, on the outside it said, my favorite part about getting older is realizing that all the adults I looked up to were just winging it. <laughs> and then you open it up and it said, 
Some things are worth getting older for. So the challenge is to reimagine the narrow place as one of expansiveness, as an invitation to growth. The word that Jewish tradition uses for this stage, this unnamed stage, is zaken. It's the same word as beard, as elder, as sage, or as old. But I prefer the one interpretation that views zaken as an acronym for one who has acquired wisdom. I want to be one who has acquired wisdom. So how do you acquire wisdom? Several years ago, at my synagogue, which is a large reform synagogue in Beverly Hills, we organized a listening campaign where we talked to over 250 congregants, boomers and those slightly beyond, people roughly age 55 to their mid-70s. We invited them to small gatherings in different people's homes, and we asked them what mattered to them at this stage of their lives. We asked them what kept them up at night and what got them up in the morning. What were their fears and what were their hopes? Three fears emerged. Becoming invisible, becoming isolated, and becoming dependent. Four themes emerged from these conversations. Spirituality, community, giving back, and concerns about people they loved, particularly end-of-life issues. Because of limited time, I can't really describe how the synagogue began to connect people around those themes. But I do want to highlight a few of the takeaways. The focus of spirituality led to something that many of you already know a great deal about. And that is wise aging groups. Now I understand from Harriet Rosen that many of you have participated in groups like that. Some of you are trained facilitators. If you are a wise aging facilitator, raise your hand. So notice that these groups focus on issues that are part of our lives as we grow older. Everything from how friendship changes as you grow older to how we feel about the sometimes surprising changes that we discover in our own bodies. These are an opportunity for people to really share about important stuff that we don't usually get to talk about. There are other groups forming in Phoenix, and if you're interested in learning more about it, some of them are happening at the uh, BJE or at your um, synagogues. Again, those of you that are teaching, raise your hand. And those of you that are interested in joining, look around and see who you should talk to. Okay? So the groups that we started in our synagogue, we brought out trainers and we trained people in our synagogue to be facilitators and also trained people in other synagogues in Los Angeles. Um, and then groups formed. Um, several of the groups met six or eight times. One of the group is still meeting, and it's been over two years. So these are groups that not only deal with issues, but they also create the kind of community that you described that are very important to us as we grow older. So that's one thing that came out of this listening campaign at my synagogue. Beyond that, we've done a lot of work around advanced health care directives. So now I want to ask you a personal question. How many of you have filled out an advanced health care directive? I want you to keep your hands up. How many of you have talked to your adult children about it? Not as many, right? Thank you. It's not enough to have an advanced health care directive. 
as a rabbi, there are many other rabbis in this uh, gathering tonight, you would be surprised, or maybe not, to know that while the majority of Jews like us, Jews in my congregation, do in fact have advanced health care directives, a lot of them have not talked to their adult children about them. So I have spent way too much time in hospital rooms with a beloved, or sometimes not so beloved, mother or father who no longer is able to make clear her or his wishes, and the grown-up children not clear what mom or dad wanted. I can't describe the toxicity of that reality. The most generous thing that any of us can do for our children is to make it clear what we want to happen when we are in that situation. Because if we don't, it's horrible what happens to families. That's really a narrow place. If you haven't had the conversation with your kids, the question is why? Well, they don't want to have it either, right? You know, mom, dad, you know, what, is something wrong? Are you doing something? Or, don't worry, you're going to live forever. You know, I wish I was as good a golfer as you are. But we know that that isn't true. We're not going to live forever. So how do we, as a community, in our congregations, in here, Valley Beit Midrash, in a Jewish community center, if you have one, how do we have these conversations? It turns out that there are resources in the community. One is called Death Over Dinner. How many of you have heard of Death Over Dinner? Raise your hand. This is a national program. Was created by some Jewish guy, but it's not a Jewish program. It's a website you can go to. You invite people to your home for dinner. It can be potluck, it can be a, what, a good dinner, whatever, and you pick a topic. The topic might be advanced healthcare directives or planning a funeral or a, a mourning a loss. And you click onto it and resources become available to you. So the Jewish Community Foundation in Los Angeles discovered that those were not Jewish resources. And a wonderful congregation called ICAR proposed a grant which they got to create Jewish resources for death over dinner. So now you go to Death Over Dinner Jewish Edition, click on, and you get all of these resources for how to have these conversations with Jewish resources. These are not trained therapists that are hosting the dinners. These are not rabbis that are hosting the dinners. These are regular Jews who are being thoughtful about what it means to get good at getting older. And these dinners are profoundly moving and really important because they give us the ability to begin to have these conversations. Some people even have these conversations with their friends and their friends' adult kids and their adult kids, and it enables you to have a conversation that might be hard to have on your own. Another version of this is the Conversation Project. Again, a national project that is not Jewish, that has resources for how to have the conversation. Because the truth is, this is perhaps the most important conversation you will ever have with your children. A second takeaway is the sensitivity to the creation of new ritual. Judaism, as in many religious traditions, 
There's a lot of life cycle ceremonies connected to the first half of our lives. Birth, Brit Milah, covenant ceremonies for daughters. Bar and Bat Mitzvah, confirmation. New rituals that have been created by the energy of Jewish feminism. A ritual for when a girl first gets her period. A ritual for when a child goes off to college. These are new rituals that are being created out of the energy of Jewish spirituality, a lot of which I would argue come from Jewish feminism. But in a traditional life cycle class, when I was a, a kid in synagogue in Boston and we took a class called The Lifetime of a Jew, it was Brit Milah, it was Bar Mitzvah, it was Confirmation, it was Marriage, and then it was death. Turns out that most of us will have a whole lot longer chunk of time between marriage, if we get married, and death, and we will all die, than between birth and marriage. What are the moments in this stage of our life that call out for ritual? You know, Jewish tradition teaches that you're supposed to say a hundred blessings a day. What does that mean? It means a hundred times a day you stop and you think, wow, divinity, however we understand it, is present at this moment. We acknowledge that presence by saying a blessing. What are the moments in this stage of our life? Moments of transition, moments of celebration, moments of loss, when we want to somehow acknowledge the presence of divinity. Some years ago, I'm sitting at my desk and I get a call from a congregant who says, Rabbi, my sister and I are on our way to our mother's house. We've just moved her into a nursing home and we're about to dismantle her house. What is the prayer you say when you dismantle your mother's house, the house where you grew up? And I said, you're right, there should be a prayer. <laughs> what is the prayer? So we found a prayer that uh, Rabbi Jack Reamer, wonderful rabbi, had written. I found it online. I read it to them. They copied it down. They said the prayer as they entered their mother's house, and it transformed that experience from one of being a chore to a sacred task. They brought that intention, and they were wise enough to ask for ritual. Another example, a friend in the congregation, they sold their house. They were moving to a condominium. Their daughter, grown up, engaged, lived in New York. The mother was really ambivalent about giving up this house where she had raised her daughter. There were so many memories in the house. What would it mean that the, you know, her daughter didn't have a room in her home anymore? They made a decision that they would have a ritual, that they would invite their daughter and her fiance to come back to their home in Los Angeles for the ritual. They sat in the living room, shared some memories, and then they went from room to room in the house. And each of them shared a positive memory from that room. And then they thanked the room and moved to the next room. And again, it was transformative. And the best part, at least to the mom, was the fiance, this man who's going to be her son-in-law, told her afterwards that he felt that through that experience, he had really become a member of the family and that these memories were now his memories as well. What are some other moments? 
One for me is tragically personal right now. My husband died a little over two and a half months ago. When do I take off my wedding ring? And how do I do that? Do I do it by myself? Do I do it in the presence of our children? Do I do it in the synagogue in some way blessed by the community that has been so supportive of me and our family in this difficult time? You know, who would have thought of that? But I'm thinking about that and how I do that. The intentionality that I bring to it, that will be part of modeling for me, for my children, and for our larger community about what it means to acknowledge the reality of sadness and loss, but also the possibility of moving on in whatever way my life is going to unfold. I heard tonight at dinner that one of you is about to retire. Some of you have already retired. What's the ritual? How do you acknowledge that beyond what might happen at work? What's the ritual for taking on a new challenge? With whom do you celebrate these things? With family, with community? What happens when you become a grandparent? What's the ritual for that? It's complicated for those of us who have grandchildren who live in other places, right? Grandparenting is a much more complicated thing now than it might have been in an earlier iteration of Jewish community. So how can ritual help us with some of the challenges of growing older? Here's one big one. When it's time to give up the keys to the car, how do you do that in a way that doesn't just feel restrictive and narrow, but in some way becomes a celebratory possibility? Could ritual help us with that? You know, some of us have this issue with our older parents. Some of our children have this issue with us. When will we acknowledge that it's maybe not safe for us to drive anymore? <clears throat> And when you think about stuff like this in a city like Phoenix, which seems to depend a lot on people being able to drive, how does that call us as a community to pay attention in a different way to public transportation or to the responsibility of our Jewish communities like our synagogues to make sure that everybody who wants to come to shul can get to shul even if they don't drive anymore? How do we make that happen? And can sensitivity to ritual help us make that happen? Um, and when we create new rituals, this was a challenge with the feminist movement in the earlier part of my career. How do we make sure that those rituals feel authentic and Jewish? And what are the institutions that can help us do this well? A third takeaway and one that is suddenly getting a lot of attention is exploring intergenerational spaces. Turns out that the best way to ensure wise aging is to cultivate younger friends. A couple that I know intentionally invites younger folks from their synagogue to come to Shabbat lunch at their home and surreptitiously interviews them to see if they're good candidates for investing in so that these will be part of their friendship network. It's an interesting way to think about cultivating new friendships. And there's a new interest in and around grandparenting. Recently, there are several new initiatives, both nationally and internationally in the Jewish community, that are beginning to explore the potential of harnessing the energy and the resources of grandparents as the ones who will ensure the Jewish future by the impact that they can make on their grandchildren, and if they don't have grandchildren of their own, on other people's grandchildren. 
we can all be surrogate grandparents to other people's kids. Turns out there's a lot of literature about the impact that older people have on younger people, and that if a young person has one grandparent figure who is crazy about that kid, on all measures that you can measure, that child does better than other children who don't have that person on their team. So you can go online, check out the Jewish Grandparents Network. It's very new, it just started. You can go online and check out Grandparents for Social Action, and which is again a local, that's a local Chicago initiative. And it turns out that there is initiative of the Jewish agency based in Israel called Global Intergenerational G2 that enables grandparents to engage with preteen grandchildren to explore, share, and experience their relationship to their families, their local community, Israel, and the Jewish people. So this is a program of the Jewish agency that's working in four American cities, and I think in one um, city in Europe. All of this is new. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. A fourth takeaway, and this is the project that fills my time as Rabbi Emerita, emerged out of the theme of community. Through the conversations in the focus groups that I mentioned, we discovered that the majority of our congregants want to age in place. They want to stay in their homes, in their neighborhoods, supported by a community that would be there for them. That was what people wanted, so we did research and discovered the village movement. How many of you have heard about villages? So a lot of you have. The village movement began 16 years ago in Beacon Hill in Boston. Beacon Hill is a pretty fancy neighborhood. It began when neighbors there got together to figure out how they could stay in the homes they loved, what they needed to do in the community to make it possible for them to stay. So that was 16 years ago. Now there are over 200 villages around the country. There are 200 more in formation. There's a national movement called Village to Village Network. There's a website, there are best practices, there are software tools to make organizing a village possible. A village is defined by a neighborhood, and the people who live within its boundaries join together. They usually pay membership fees, and they often hire outside professional help. It's an old concept. Neighbors helping neighbors. I can stay in my house until I can't climb a ladder anymore to change a light bulb. Until I have, unless I have a neighbor who can come in and change my light bulb. This year, after my husband died, I wanted to build a sukkah, but I couldn't do it by myself. I'm part of a village. People from the village came and helped me build my sukkah. We discovered this, and it sounded like a perfect project for a synagogue, or for a church for that matter. The bottom line is we got a grant from the Jewish Community Foundation. At dinner I sat with uh, um, Rich, who's connected to the Jewish Community Foundation here. Maybe this is a project that you all would want to fund. We got a grant. We found a partner synagogue. Sometimes working with a foundation is a pain in the neck. Working with our Jewish Community Foundation turned out to be a blessing. We applied for this grant and they said, Temple Emmanuel cannot apply alone. You have to have at least another partner. So we reached out to another partner synagogue, 
Temple Isaiah, another reformed synagogue not far from Temple Emmanuel. And we got the grant. We spent a year planning, cultivating leaders from both synagogues. And three years ago, we launched High Village LA. It's the first synagogue-based village in the country. A synagogue village, in our terms, meant you had to be a member of one of the two synagogues, Temple Emmanuel or Temple Isaiah, if you wanted to join the village. This turns out to be a fabulous win-win for both the synagogues and for the village. The village gets in-kind services from the two synagogues. Most of the time, people meet in each other's homes, but sometimes we need a bigger venue, and all the back office stuff is done in one of our synagogues. Saves the village a ton of money, and it turns out to be really important for our synagogues. My synagogue, at least a quarter or a third of the people in the synagogue are in this age cohort. I suspect that's also true about some of the synagogues that you all are affiliated with. People who were leaving the synagogue are staying, and new people are joining the synagogue because they want to be part of the village. I want to make it clear that the village is not a place. It's a community led by adults who share their optimism, skills, support, and expertise to joyfully navigate the next steps in our lives. They pay a small membership fee, and everybody in the village is encouraged to do four hours of service a month. You can go on the website and check it out. It's really amazing. In my many years of being a rabbi, I have never seen the kind of energy that I'm seeing from folks that are connected to this village. It's a bottom-up as opposed to a top-down program, which means you're interested in gardening. You announce on our website that you're starting a backyard gardening group. It's a meeting on Tuesday at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and people show up. There are trips, to, there are book clubs, there are um, movie nights. You know, I'm going to the movies Saturday afternoon at 5 o'clock. Anybody wants to meet me there, meet me there. It's amazing the amount of energy and activity that are go that's going on through this village. There are 250 members, equal numbers from each congregation. We thought that people would join the village because they wanted services. They would want somebody to drive them to the hospital. They would want somebody to change their light bulb. They would want help with how to deal with their technology. It turns out that people really joined because they want social connections, social capital, to use Robert Putnam's phrase. It turns out that loneliness is not just a problem for the frail elderly. It's a growing public health problem for people of all ages, including people in this boomer demographic. This loneliness turns out to be a major public health problem. It's actually been called an epidemic. Social connection and the quality of relationships are predictors of physical health, longevity, and the quality of life. Experts suggest that loneliness can increase the risk of premature death by 30%, making it as risky as obesity and as dangerous as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Some of you know that the uh, British Prime Minister recently appointed a Minister for Loneliness. Imagine something like that in our country. So this village and this notion of volunteering creating connection, turns out to be more than just about us taking care of each other. But we're part of a energy 
that's changing the paradigm of growing older. We, our village is part of Gen to Gen, which is a program of Encore.org, whose goal it is to link a million boomers with children in some kind of a volunteer way. We're also part of the Village Movement California, which is a consortium of California villages, there are now between 40 and 60, who working together will someday be part of changing the conversation about what it means to grow older in California. So through this village, I think that we're creating something that's both old and surprisingly new, an intergenerational community that will enrich our lives and help us be there for each other, and along the way, strengthen our synagogues. What I've discovered is that this village is the antidote to the fears that people had that emerged in our listening campaign. Through the village, you're no longer invisible. Through the village, you're no longer isolated. And through the village and the work that we're doing to change the paradigm of growing older, we are reminding ourselves that none of us ever were independent. Human beings are interdependent. And our job is to change the definition of what it means to be in connection to a kind of mutual and nurturing interdependence. In two weeks, the Torah portion begins to tell the story of the Jewish people. You remember how it starts in Lech Lecha? God says to Avram, Lech Lecha, go, really go, from your land and from your birthplace and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. Guess how old Avram and my telling of the story, Sarai, were when they got that invitation? 75. God didn't reach out to millennials. <laughs> they were seasoned adults. Maybe that's a better word than senior or elder. Seasoned adults. And they heard an invitation to explore their next stage. And that certainly led to blessing. So my challenge to you, as I conclude the formal parts of my remarks, what's the invitation that you are hearing now, at this moment in your life? Listen to that invitation. Find the other people that are going to respond to it with you. In my earlier session, we talked a little bit about what people need at this stage of their lives. And I suggested that everyone needs a minion. Some of us need a minion to pray in. Others of us don't. But all of us need those nine other people who are going to be there for us when we need them. And maybe those nine other people who with us can help us listen to the invitation at this stage of our lives. And if we can figure out ways to do this together, that will, in fact, be a blessing, not only for ourselves, but for our entire community, and I think for our entire country, and maybe even for the world. Okay, we're going to take questions. Perhaps we don't need a mic. Um, any uh, 
First of all, thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, yes, is that a hand up? Yes, please. If you can speak loudly. What's the name of this prayer? You can find it online, go to, to actually it's, it's in a um, website called Ritual Well. Go to ritualwell.org and you click on Life Cycle and then um, click on Ritual or something. It's pretty easy to find. So I have a question for you. What's a moment in your life? where you could imagine ritual would be helpful? Or have any of you experienced one? Yes? Three weeks into retirement. Three weeks into retirement, okay. So that's the moment. What do you do to acknowledge it? And with whom do you do it? Okay, so did you do something? Okay, so that's interesting, isn't it? It's a huge deal for those of us who have worked full time. What's your next project, right? How do you think about that? Is the idea of doing some kind of a ritual something that would help us figure out what our next projects are? And the next projects could be something related to um, what we did before, or it could be something completely different. One of the things that, there's a lot of stuff going on now. There's a wonderful website, uh, not a website, yeah, a website, called nextavenue.org, which deals with issues of, of boomers, this next stage. And one of the articles that I recently read suggests that people like you take a gap year. A gap year like you might take between high school and college, where you get to explore something that might have something to do with what you do next, or it might not. Before you sign up for anything that keeps you so busy that you don't have time to really think, think of it as a gap year. What would that look like? So uh, two questions for me. I was surprised to find that Many under the age of 60 do not believe they were reaching. Um, and, uh, so I guess one, one question is, um, what is the role, what is the wisdom on, um, on how a child responsibly supports a parent in their reaching? Um, the second question is, I saw a recent study that said the low, that the loneliest population um, was actually the millennials. That's right, interesting. That they are actually much lonelier than those living in isolation um, and uh, many of them are very connected in college, and then they lose community. They check out the community, and they want to prove they can make it. They want to get married, they want to be successful, they're very isolated. What is some of the wisdom that they can learn from this as well? So they need a minion too, and we do need to, uh, I mean, I, I do not object to the fact that the Jewish community funds programs for millennials and for uh, young people with young families. I think that's important. I just object to the fact that until very recently, there has been absolutely no traction in the Jewish community for funding any of this. The Jewish community does young people well. It does frail old age magnificently. What it doesn't do very well yet is us. What would it look like for us and our foundations to imagine intergenerational spaces where lonely millennials and maybe some of us are engaged with each other in ways. Turns out that at the University of Washington, there's a housing situation where boomers have their homes and students across a courtyard have their dorm rooms and they all eat together in a, um, you know, college uh, dining hall. How cool is that? I mean, what would it look like here in Phoenix to imagine those kinds of connections, however, whatever they might look like? I think that there's a lot of creative, out-of-the-box thinking that we ought to be able to do um, that will 
transform the fact that if you can't drive anymore, but if you have a millennial friend who does, and you all go to shul together, or who knows, what would that look like? How many of your synagogues have very serious programs that anybody who needs a ride to shul gets a ride to shul? Okay, it's a no-brainer. I know that it's hard to do. I was a congregational rabbi. Believe me, I know that it's hard to do, but it's doable. And how would that transform things? You give scholarships to kids that drive us to synagogue, and they come to synagogue with us. Wouldn't cost very much money. They need the money, we need the rides. Let's start to think about things like that together. And let's engage our community foundation, our federation, our Bureau of Jewish Education, and our synagogues, as well as pro projects like this, to really think out of the box. Listen, I look at you. You have discretionary time, or you wouldn't be here. Many of you probably have some discretionary resources, or you wouldn't be major donors to, uh, to this program. And if you're not, and you could be, you should be. How do we use our talent? I mean, I've met the people that I've met so far. You've all done wonderful things in your life, and you're still going to do them in differently from the way you did when you were a full-time worker. What would it look like for us to really think about what we could do together that would change this community? I heard coming here that there are 100,000 Jews in Phoenix. That's not that many. You all already know each other. A lot of you are your age. What would make your life richer? How can you change this community? What do you need to be doing in terms of public transportation? What do you need to be doing in terms of whatever the issues are that you all face here in Phoenix? We can do it. Now, my late husband and I are writing a book called Getting Good at Getting Older, a Jewish catalog for a new stage. That's very clever because it's stage, S-T, in parentheses, and then age. <laughs> My late husband was Richard Siegel. He wrote a book called The Jewish Catalog. How many of you have heard of that book? Okay, so that book was us in the 60s. Now we're in our 60s, and what we learned then, we're learning again. We're culture makers, we're culture drivers, we have agency, we're smart, we can do it ourselves, we don't need anybody to give us permission for what we're doing. Let's take that same energy and apply it to this stage of our life. Let's think about the issues that are important to us at this stage of our lives. Getting good at gaining wisdom, these wise aging classes, Musar. Getting good at getting along. What are the kinds of relationships that are in our lives now that we need to think about together? Taking care of our older parents. My mother is 96 years old. Believe me, and she lives in Boston. It's an issue, right? She didn't have to take care of her parents that long. Many of us are dealing with children, grown-up children, who have come home to live with us. What's the care and feeding of adult children look like for those of us with our boomerang kids? How does friendship change as we grow older? What about intimate relationships? What's the work that those of us who are coupled can do, want to do, ought to be doing now to deepen those kinds of relationships? And what about grandparenting? You know, what does that look like? You have kids here, grandkids here. What if your grandkids are someplace else? What are the tools, the techniques that you can use to stay connected to them? How does social media, Facebook, um, FaceTime, whatever, how does that change? Who do we need to talk to to figure that out? Do any of these grandparenting initiatives interest you? Check them out. Do something here around grandparenting. 
Some of us have grandchildren who are um, children of intermarried families. How do we be positive, joyful, incredible presences in their lives without crossing boundaries with our children and their spouses? These are issues about getting good at getting along. What else is an issue for us? Getting good at getting better, dealing with physical stuff, dealing with illness. All of us will deal with illness at some point in our life. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are ill, and there are people who are not yet ill, right? What are the tools that our tradition has to teach us how to deal with that? How do we be a good friend to someone who's sick? What does Jewish tradition have to teach us about visiting the sick? What should we be doing? I'm sure you're already doing a lot around this in your own synagogues. Getting good at getting ready, having these conversations about uh, end-of-life issues, planning your funeral. Um, you know, one of the, the most important things, as my husband um, had cancer over the last couple of years, we're writing this book together, it's very powerful and poignant at the same time, but one of the very best things is, there's a chapter in the book called Getting Good at Getting Organized, which is a, uh, an organizer, where it asks for all of your passwords, all of your bank accounts, all of your everything. You know, you think you know this about the person you live with, but then, God forbid, they die and you can't get into their cell phone. It's a disaster, and there's no excuse for it. If you haven't done this already, go home tonight and do it, because, God forbid, you need that. These are all issues that are important to us at this stage of our lives, and uh, we can make a difference. I read recently that we spent decades of our life trying to not become our parents. Um, which is cer certainly true from my own experience, no matter how noble one is as a parent, a child's job is to not become them, but we also spent decades of our life trying to become like our grandparents. Um, uh, so actually there's a very unique role uh, uh, to play there, and I hope we can play our small role at BDM in providing dozens and dozens of learning opportunities over the coming year to continue to live with intentionality and wisdom. You provide us a ton of wisdom tonight. Yes, yes please. The other chapter in the book that I didn't mention, but I want to, is the final chapter is called Getting Good at Giving Away. And, and in it, we deal with strategic philanthropy, no matter how much or how little money you have. You know, thinking about how you're going to give away money. Um, there, are, there are giving circles that are forming all over the country where people pool a certain amount of money and then as a group, they decide to give it away. It gives you community, it gives you intentional philanthropy, and again, philanthropy doesn't mean you're rich. It simply means you know that when you die, you can't take it all with you. Um, the whole issue of legacy. Um, we have a chapter called Leaving a Legacy, Not a Landfill. At what point do you want to downsize? How do you do that? What do you give away? What if your kids don't want the stuff that you want to give away? These are really important issues for us to think about. Um, what I think is important is that there are four ways that we have of um, giving back. One is through money. One is through stuff. One is through our stories. And then one is through our values. So stories, sometimes people, you know, have somebody interview them and have a story that's either in a book or a video. Incredible gift that you leave, maybe not to the people that know you, but to their children. You know, what would it mean for you now to think about doing that? How could you interview, if you have older parents or older loved ones, could you be interviewing them? And then finally, values. Jewish tradition offers us unbelievable tools, one of which is called an ethical will. You know who's getting Nana's hutch, right? But what is the actual value 
that you want to be leaving? How do you tell your loved ones what your life has meant to you and what you really hope they have learned from you? Um, it's called an ethical will. It's also called a letter that you might write to those people who will live after you. All of this is part of getting good at getting older, and all of this really is a blessing. Now you can conclude. <laughs>